Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Compliance Beat podcast. I'm Eric Moorhead. I wanted to upfront uh, thank all of you who came up to talk to me at the recent SCCE event, or not so recent now, it's been a couple of weeks, near in the National Harbor near Washington, D.C. Uh, it was really gratifying to see a lot of you in person, and, and I appreciate your continued uh, listenership and uh, encourage you to let others know about our podcast. And if you are new to the podcast or haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please encourage, I encourage you uh, to do so. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a l- another subject that uh, uh, came up in the presentation that we put together for SCCE this year. Uh, and that is uh, a, another edition of Sentencing Commission Confidential, uh, my uh, irregular uh, series of podcasts about the sentencing guidelines, uh, particularly or specifically about the organizational sentencing guidelines. And today we're going to talk about uh, a topic that um, came up during our discussion that I think is an important one and uh, is one of the uh, easily missed uh, nuances of Chapter 8, something that comes up frequently, and that's uh, knowing the difference between the personnel that are described uh, within the sentencing guidelines and their uh, particular responsibilities. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Also want to mention an upcoming webinar on code of conduct development. Uh, Once again, I'm teaming with the good people at the Clear Law Institute, Uh, There will be in the show notes uh, a link to registration for an upcoming webinar on November the 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's November 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Clear Law records all of these webinars that I uh, do do with them, Uh, and there are several topics that I've mentioned over the past few months. Uh, So even if you are not available uh, the afternoon of November 7th, uh, do check out the Clear Law Institute. For whatever reason, you can't search my name, but if you search a topic like Code of Conduct, uh, those webinars will come up. Uh, And I'll have a link, again, in the show notes uh, for this episode if you are interested in checking that out and uh, maybe registering for that upcoming webinar, where you can get credit, uh, both CCEP credit and also uh, CLE credit if you uh, need that for your law license. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, again uh, about s- some of the information that we discussed. I thought at a, a really uh, well-received uh, discussion in uh, at National Harbor a couple weeks ago. Um, and this is part of a continuing series to kind of dive in a little deeper into the sentencing guideline standards. One of the things that I think I'll talk about in the next few weeks is why the sentencing guidelines are still important. Uh, uh, one issue that's come up uh, here in the last year or so, a couple years, as we get more um, specific, if you will, guidance from the Department of Justice, I've heard more than one person suggest that perhaps the guidelines just don't matter that much anymore. Au contraire, mon frere, I would say. Uh, the guidelines still matter. The guidelines are still uh, uh, much more permanent than in what has uh, been characterized by several officials, including the former deputy attorney general, as informal guidance. Uh, but we'll get that to, we'll get to that topic another day. Today, I want to talk 
about some what I characterize as sometimes overlooked and misunderstood uh, aspects of Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines. Uh, and in particular today, I want to talk uh, about uh, the different types of personnel uh, that are defined within the sentencing guidelines. And this is important because uh, depending on which type of personnel you're discussing, there are different responsibilities and roles that are defined uh, pretty specifically in some cases within the sentencing guidelines. Um, the two types of personnel that are mentioned in Chapter 8 are high-level personnel and substantial authority personnel. And there is a difference, and I'm going to go ahead and read uh, from uh, Chapter 8A1.2, Application Note 3B, and 8C2.5, Application Note 3, if you're keeping track at home. Uh, and want to look up these notes specifically. High-level personnel of the organization, and this is, I'm quoting, means individuals who have a substantial control over the organization or who have a substantial role in the making of policy within the organization. This term includes a director, an executive officer, an individual in charge of a major business or functional unit of the organization, such as sales, administration, or finance, and an individual with substantial ownership interest. So when you see the term high-level personnel, we're talking about officers uh, or people that are in charge of operational units or business units who, uh, as is mentioned specifically in this definition, have a hand in making policy or setting the policy. Uh, another uh, mention in 8C 2.5 says, high-level personnel of a unit of the organization uh, means agents within the unit who set the policy for control of that unit. So policymaking, uh, executive position, high-level position, that's what you're talking about when the term high-level personnel uh, is mentioned. The other term that's used and used actually a little bit more frequently is the concept of substantial authority personnel. Now, right off the bat, I want to say what, happen, what happens often here is these two concepts get uh, conflated. High-level personnel and substantial authority personnel really do sound very similar. And so I don't think it's any surprise that often people get these these terms confused, conflated, or think they mean the same thing. And they do not within the context of the organizational sentencing guideline, guidelines. And it's important to understand the difference. And I'm going to explain why here in a few minutes. But let's, let's look at the definition for substantial authority personnel. And this is, again, in 8A 1.2 Application Note 3C. This is where the definitions for the section are included. Substantial authority personnel means individuals who, within the scope of their authority, exercise a substantial measure of discretion in acting on behalf of the organization. The term includes high-level personnel of the organization, individuals who exercise substantial supervisory authority, example, a plant manager or sales manager, and any other individuals who, although not a part of the organization's management, nevertheless exercise substantial discretion when acting within the scope of their authority. An example, in an individual with authority in an organization to negotiate or set price levels, or an individual authorized to negotiate or approve significant contracts. Whether an individual falls within this category must be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Sorry, that was a little lengthy, but I, it, there's a lot of important information in there. Let's break it down. 
first of all, within the scope of their authority. So a substantial authority personnel uh, is somebody who's acting within their authority and has some measure of discretion. And in other words, they have some responsibilities uh, to bind the organization. Uh, and it's noted that uh, high-level personnel, which we already talked about, are included within substantial authority personnel. So when you say substantial authority personnel, that's the broader group. That includes everybody who's acting within the scope of their role and has some discretion in that uh, in, the, in that decision making. And they do not necessarily need to be part of the organization's management. So in other words, the, the guidelines are carving out this different high-level personnel that have some sort of position of authority that set policy, as we discussed. And substantial authority personnel, which is a much broader group, that's everybody that's acting within their authority and have discretion when acting within the scope of their authority. In other words, they can make decisions uh, on behalf of the organization. And those may not be uh, very, you know, uh, uh, decisions at the highest level of the organization, but that setting prices and negotiating contracts specifically are mentioned as examples. And it's also noted, and the last part is important, that whether somebody is in substantial authority or not is going to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. So their, uh, whether they actually are substantial authority personnel or not, uh, we're going to look at what they do, what their role is, what uh, were they acting within the uh, granted authority? Uh, were they able to bind the company in some form or fashion, even if it's small, even if it's smaller contracts or setting prices uh, uh, for just one aspect of the organization or one subdivision of the organization? I think there's a strong argument to be made that they're substantial authority personnel. So this is a very broad definition. And this matters, uh, the, dif the, the differentiation between these two, this matters because we draw a distinction uh, within the sentencing guidelines about uh, what uh, kind of activities uh, will bind the corporation for the purposes of uh, having exposure for uh, misconduct or, or, in the case of the sentencing guidelines, violations of the law. So uh, let's look back at uh, one of the seven hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines, uh, due diligence. Of the seven hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines, I think it's... Of the seven hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines, I think that the uh, due diligence piece is perhaps the most misunderstood. Um, you know, I, I would say uh, incentives, uh, but it's incentives is not just not necessarily misunderstood. It's just not well defined, and we don't know exactly what it means, and it's a hard one to uh, implement. But but due diligence, I think, is perhaps the most misunderstood. There are a couple of things that have, I've heard over the years that uh, have kind of left me scratching my head. Uh, so the the due diligence hallmark uh, is uh, in eight B two point one B three. And it states, the organization shall use reasonable efforts not to include within the substantial authority personnel. So remember, that's that broader group, larger group of people, people acting within their authority uh, and that have discretion within their authority, uh, that any individual in that group whom the organization knew or should have known through the exercise of due diligence has engaged in illegal activities or other conduct inconsistent with an effective compliance and ethics.
program. So that means that organizations should be uh, using reasonable efforts. So what's reasonable in this situation? Uh, we can talk more about that in a few minutes uh, to make sure that uh, no one who has engaged in illegal activities or any other conduct inconsistent with an effective compliance and ethics program. What does that mean? That's pretty broad, I think. So no one who has any kind of criminal record and, uh, uh, and no one who has exhibited behavior in the past that's inconsistent with an effective compliance and ethics program, so any kind of misconduct I think would potentially rise to that level, uh, should have should should be substantial authority personnel. So this is a broad group, and I think in the past I've heard definitions like, for example, uh, that sound like high-level personnel. It's like, oh well, you can't have executive officers or other senior people in the organization uh, that have engaged in illegal conduct. And sometimes it only stops at illegal conduct. It doesn't get this broader, uh, inconsistent uh, definition as part of it. That's not the case, folks. It's substantial authority personnel. It's this broader group. This is very often missed. So when we're talking about due diligence, we're not talking about due diligence at the executive level. We're talking about due diligence throughout the organization where there's any kind of personnel that could be binding the organization, that within their normal activities, their normal authority has some discretion to set prices, make contracts, uh, bind the company in some fashion. That could be a really broad group, especially in a larger organization. So when I see organizations whose due diligence process, and we'll talk what, 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 uh, what might comprise a due diligence process, only covers high-level personnel, I'm really concerned because I don't think that meets the expectation in the sentencing guidelines. The other thing that I've heard in the past, and I, I haven't seen this in a while, but I, I saw it a few times uh, five and six years ago in a couple of different contexts, including at a, uh, at a presentation where somebody suggested that this due diligence applies just to compliance personnel, that you can't have somebody in charge of your compliance program uh, that uh, has engaged in illegal conduct or uh, conduct that's in, inconsistent with an effective compliance and ethics program. Now, that is somewhere else in the guidelines, which we'll mention in a few minutes, that there is a provision in the guidelines that says that you can't put people in charge of your compliance program that have uh, engaged in illegal activities or other uh, conduct inconsistent with an effective program. But that's not what this says. This is about that broader group, that substantial authority personnel group. So uh, the upshot here, the practical impact is that this could include personnel that may be considered quote unquote low level. Uh, again, going back to the definition of substantial authority personnel, it says specifically, not part of the organization's management. So what do you do? What, what is the due diligence process? That the, what are the expectations potentially that we see here? Well, um, there are a few things that I would look into in your organization if you aren't already aware of them and, and, their, and their extent or their, their scope. One is the background check process, uh, both when people are uh, brought on, the onboarding process for background checks and reviews, and what's the ongoing process 
to monitor uh, quote unquote substantial authority personnel. Because it's not just a matter of when they walk in the door, uh, but what's, you know, if somebody's with, been with the organization for 10 years, they have the power to bind the corporation, potentially in some aspect. And when they walk through the door, you did a background check and a financial background check and everything was fine. But in year five, uh, when they were working at your organization, they de developed a very nasty gambling habit. And now they're in a position where they have some sort of uh, contra contracting authority or some other authority where they might be able uh, to um, uh, uh, cause some damage uh, because of uh, personal issues that are ongoing that would potentially be uncovered by rerunning a financial background check. Conflicts of interest disclosures. Very often, very, very often, conflicts of interest disclosures either don't exist on a consistent basis or, uh, or those disclosures only cover uh, what we would perhaps call uh, higher, high level uh, uh, personnel of an organization, not substantial authority personnel of the organization. Well, I think that your conflict of interest disclosures need to cover this broader group. Um, there needs to be a process, and there are many ways these days to automate the conflicts of interest process to make it a little bit more smooth and allow you to have a broader coverage for a larger group of uh, individuals. And that's something uh, also that I think you'd want to investigate uh, to see how you uh, how your organization stacks up in trying to address this issue. And then uh, some sort of process for screening or monitoring, maybe on the back end, some sort of audit process for all everybody who has uh, approvals or, or, or authorities uh, within the organization, uh, making sure that there are some checks and balances there or some review there uh, on the audit side or the monitoring side. Uh, that's an important thing to investigate. How are the people that would have substantial authority personnel. Remember, it's this broad, broad definition. How are they monitored? How are they, uh, 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 what, what are the checks on that uh, authority? Now, the question might be, well, why is this important? Why, um, you know, why do we need to uh, make sure that we meet these, uh, these particular definitions or that we're looking at our uh, individuals and their authorities uh, through this prism. Well, again, remember, the sentencing guidelines are just that, they're guidelines. Um, they do not, and I, I say this over and over again when I do these uh, Sentencing Commission Confidential episodes, the sentencing guidelines only specifically apply to your organization in the criminal context. When your organization is being uh, sentenced for a violation of federal law. The problem, however, is that the sentencing guideline standards, in particular the seven hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines that make up an effective compliance program, are widely adopted as the standards for an effective program, uh, the benchmark for that, and best, and best practices are based upon that. So uh, organizations having a misunderstanding or conflating these two different groups of individuals in their organization and not really monitoring or having the proper controls for substantial authority personnel who can bind your corporation no matter what level, uh, what their title is and what level of the organization they're in is a really important uh, issue that needs to be looked at. That's why. So um, I would take a look um, at, again, at the onboarding process, the uh, 
uh, background check process, uh, how often and, and under what circumstances background checks are, and financial checks are rerun, and how the parts of the organization that are covered by that are determined. Um, and I would look on the back end on, on monitoring and auditing. Uh, when you're looking at authorities and uh, uh, those, you know, the, the ability to, you know, again, looking at the ability to bind the corporation, how are you monitoring those activities for this broader group? And how do you determine who's in that broader group? I think those are important things to do. So I hope you found this helpful. There's a few other items that we covered uh, in uh, National Harbor that I'm going to be mentioning over the coming weeks in more of these uh, sentencing Commission confidential episodes. So I hope you'll tune in for that. I think uh, there are, as I mentioned, a few things that I, I think are, are commonly overlooked in the sentencing guidelines that are worth discussing. So until next time, uh, please do uh, get in touch if you have questions uh, or have suggestions for the future. Uh, you can reach us at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com, or you can always email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. I do love to hear from listeners. And until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.